Hi, I'm Nick and you are listening to the Niche Aviation Podcast. This week I speak to Vic Terry, who is the Head of Digital Systems at Vertical Aerospace. For anyone who doesn't know, Vertical Aerospace build electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, also known as eVTOL. They're based in Bristol, UK, just around the corner from me, so I was really excited to speak to them. A bit more about Vertical Aerospace, they are one of the few manufacturers in the world to actually have a working prototype of a vertical landing, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. To date, they've built two aircraft and have recently announced their third, which is expected next year. I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Vic. Hi, Nick. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Thanks again for joining me. It's really great to have you on. Just to start, it'd be interesting to learn a bit more about yourself and also why you joined Vertical Aerospace. I was working at Dyson at the time as a technical lead for one of their categories, so looking at different product lines and, and actually that whole family of product lines. So it was quite an interesting role. You know, Dyson's a pretty exciting company to work for. And then I got approached by a recruiter, I wasn't necessarily looking, who said, there's a few guys in a shed in Bristol doing some cool stuff. Do you want to go take a look? And that was literally it. I had no idea what they were actually doing. And for the whole interview, we were going back and forth, talking about stuff. I, I twigged partway through the interview about what they were actually doing, but it it wasn't that sort of 10 minutes before the end. I said, you're actually going to tell me what this is then? But they actually said <laughs> what the job I was interviewing for was or what the product they were making. When I found out, I, I had a really good uh, rapport with the guys. I thought, yeah, let, let's take the plunge. Let's join a startup. So there was only, I can't remember exactly what employee number I was, but it was certainly less than 10 of us when I joined. And your role, can you just give me a bit of background, what you do? My team look after the electronics hardware, the software, sensors, and the algorithms. So very much anything digital and intelligence and data falls under me. I'd be really interested to learn more about the history of vertical aerospace and the mission that you specifically are focused on. Yeah, it's an interesting beginning story, I think. So the guy who actually founded the company is Stephen Fitzpatrick. So he founded Ovo Energy which is a, a green energy firm. Stephen actually does a lot of campaigning in the background. So Zero Carbon is one of his initiatives to try and put uh, decarbonization um, or zero carbon <laughs> into policy and law. So there's this real drive to, to actually reduce our impact on the planet, bring along electrification. He's a big fan of uh, Formula One as well. So really into high technology and how these things can can help us. So the story goes that he was sitting in traffic in Bristol on his way into work one day and just thought, this has got to be a better way than this. And, and that is pretty much where Vertical Aerospace started. So he took a couple of engineers from Manor Racing when he still had that Formula One team and pretty much started it with the question of, can we do it? Can we take one of these little toy drones and scale it up? Is the technology ready for that? And that's what the POC is. The POC actually stands for Proof of Concept. This fact just blows my mind. So six engineers in a shed, and trust me, it was very much a shed, designed, built, test, and flew the POC in 12 months, in a year. That's just mind-blowing to achieve that. 
Clearly, yeah. to do that, you've got to cut corners, you'll buy the stuff pop, off the shelf. The, the puck is a giant drone. Yes, sorry, the puck is a 750-kilogram multi-rotor, so uh, a quadcopter. Uh, so a very big drone. That's yeah. what, like 300 times the size of the small DJI Phantom. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, it takes up uh, two car parking spaces. Uh, we actually, oh, right. Because yeah. we've... You know, even now we talk about flying cars. We we actually wheeled it around and put it in the car parking spaces to uh, get a few photos, which should be on the website. By going through that that cycle of design, build, test, you find out there's bits of physics that you ignore when you're small and tiny, like a little baby drone, and they really come to bite you in the ass when you start scaling things up. So yeah, that was a really interesting ride for the company. And I joined just as uh, the final touches on the aircraft were being done, and we were going out to flight test. So with that under our belts, Stephen then set the next challenge of, okay, let's take a step towards our final product. So what should we focus on? So certification is a real big one. So what do we need for that? We need some redundancy and having an aircraft that pretty much just carries its own mass around is not very useful. So let's add some payload and let's add uh, redundancy and speed to it. And that's where the Seraph aircraft came in. So if you'll notice, it's a very different aircraft design. You've got uh, 12 rotors, so six arms, each with two rotors on. And one of the biggest achievements for that was actually to demonstrate a, a flight with a motor out mid-flight so that we can actually survive that failure. And the one of the good quotes from when the guys were doing that, the pilot said, have you done it yet? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was a huge achievement for the company. And it, and it, it survived. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Flew demonstrated. Our simulation showed that we could actually lose an entire arm, so one of the worst failures, and we, it would survive. We decided not to take that all the way up to full scale. We'd already ticked the box <laughs> of uh, demonstrating mid-flight. So then we started work on, okay, we've experimented with the redundancy and taken that step, so what is our production aircraft going to be? Um, so we actually set up a couple of concepting teams, um, so red and blue team. And this is when we were having a bit of work done at the office. So they each had a shipping container outside <laughs> to work in and isolate. So there's only um, three people in each team. And then we also set up a an analysis team for them to pull on. So there was about 10 people, I think, in the analysis team to run some numbers and, and support both of those teams doing the, for anyone familiar with ideation uh, and innovation, it's doing the, the divergent and convergent. You divert your ideas all the way out and just go weird and wacky. And then you start... Um, converging down to uh, to the design that you want to do. And that's where the VA-1X aircraft came from. So you went then from the, the Seraph to the, the 1X. What yes. are the key differences between the two? Or what are the key things about the, the 1X? So you've got lots of different aircraft concepts in this space, in the eVTOL space. So, uh, eVTOL stands for Electric uh, Vertical Takeoff and Landing. So much like you've got the the Harrier jump jet, which is a, a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, but it does it by yeah. burning dinosaurs. This one does it with electricity. So you have what's known as a multi-rotor, which is what everyone associates with a drone, like a volocopter. You've then got a lift and cruise configuration. So now you're adding wings to an aircraft. Um, so it turns out if you want to actually get somewhere efficiently, uh, wings are really useful. So a lift and cruise will have one set of systems to give you your vertical, component and then one set of systems to give you your forward propulsion so you've got the simplicity but you're carrying around that mass penalty for that and in aircraft 
masses king, especially on these sorts of aircraft. And then the evolution from that is what's known as a tilt rotor, which is what the, the VA-1X aircraft design is. So instead of having two systems to do your vertical propulsion and your forward propulsion, you actually have tilting rotors uh, or vectored thrust so that you can reuse those components in both flight phases. It adds a lot of complexity into the design and into the safety cases and the certification of those, but actually you end up with a much higher performing aircraft. So noise is a really big thing for these, right? If we're going to be flying over people's houses, then well, everyone knows when a helicopter <laughs> flies over your house. Actually, when I was at, at Dyson every once a week or, or so, everyone would literally have to stop what they're doing because James would come in in his helicopter and all you could hear was thump, 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 thump. So all meetings would have to stop for you know, five minutes as he flew over and landed. Um, so that's no good if it's flying over your house. So noise is a really big thing and a key driver into these aircraft design. So if we just go back to that, the noise issue. Yep. Um, and maybe the helicopter, the challenges that I've received are actually, what's the difference between your aircraft or the, the VA-1X and a helicopter? Yep. Yeah. And I guess asked all the time. So why a multi-rotor rather than a helicopter? Redundancy is one thing. With a helicopter, you've got so many single-point failures. We then take the noise as well. So helicopter rotors, where they're really long, the tips are actually going very fast, and they actually go supersonic. So the tips of rotor blades you get uh, on helicopters, you get a sonic boom as it's going around. So that's why they sound so loud. If we take a, a helicopter of the same mass as a, a multi-rotor aircraft, we need to move the same amount of air down in order to produce the lift. So if we imagine the area that's covered by a single rotor on a helicopter, we need to cover exactly the same area, give or take, with our multi-rotor. So we spread, spread that out over those, those different propellers or rotors actually, propellers technically are the ones that go forward and rotors are technically the ones that, that take you up. If you imagine that they're, to move the same amount of air, they all spin at the same RPM, whether you're a helicopter or whether you're a multi-rotor, we can now see that because those plays are a lot shorter, the tip speeds are much lower. So actually that's where we get some of the inherent noise benefits and why we can say we, we're aiming to be 30 times quieter than the equivalent helicopter. So if we go then back to that, you're you're going to be quieter than a helicopter because of both the electric, the fact that you have smaller blades. Yeah. But then what's the so what behind that? Is it the fact that we'll see these flying over houses overnight and people won't even notice them? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that we can get to that point. So if we look at global megatrends, urbanization and urban sprawl is well up there in terms of those megatrends. So this golden vision, I think Uber's got a really good video on YouTube around this of a lady wants to get home and she just puts in her app, take me home. And a taxi comes and picks her up and then takes her to a vertiport, which then takes her to the next vertiport and then the taxi's already waiting there and that gets her home. Uh, I think that's where we want to be. I'd really like that idea of just take me home and then take me home the quickest way um, or take me home the cheapest way, um, for example. Yeah. So where does UAM sit in that? For me, I think we're selling back people time. So by being able to go as the crow flies, by not being stuck in traffic our one or our two-dimensional road network, we can actually 
give people a lot of time back. Travel at you know, 150 miles an hour, point to point. It's a lot better than sitting in traffic. As with any new technology, as with any new thing like this, yes, it'll come with a premium to begin with. But our target is not that those first people are the super rich. If you think of first cars, it was always the, the landed gentry that could afford these things. We're, we're certainly not targeting that for our first first user group. It's more the people who, uh, I guess, who values their time and will spend that premium to, to get their time back. So if you think business people going back and forth from economic hubs, maybe take some of the use cases around London Airport to Canary Wharf. So whether it's Heathrow or, or whatever to Canary Wharf. That's where I think we'll probably end up seeing some of these first services or downtown LA to LAX. Uh, that's what, where I'm completely sold on electric ver vertical takeoff and landing is the fact that if you look at a journey from Heathrow to Canary Wharf, typically using trains, taxis, it's about 90 minutes. Yeah. But if you look at your aircraft, it's 15. Yeah. And that's just a big sale. It, even if that's just the starting point, if you can get rid of the noise, it means that you can fly it more, which means the cost of flying it comes down. Yes. Yeah. And you get so those economies of go. Mm. Or the, the uh, high utilization. That's interesting. If we took us to take a step back there, why is the space now become so exciting or why has it grown so much in the last 10 years? Even when I first started three years ago, it was still seen as fringe and not very many people interested. I remember going out to the big suppliers of the world and basically being told to go away. <laughs> Uh, oh, so like the big aer aeronauticals. Yeah, the big aerospace supplies, the tier one supplies. But now, even a couple of years ago, in that space of a year, things really started to change and, and pick up and people looking at space and go, actually, no, these things are possible. We've got people building and flying these things and starting to understand that some of the, the engineering challenges underneath and the, the way that this space is starting to push and challenge the, the status quo of the aerospace industry, that yes, we can do things faster. Yes, we can take learnings from other industries. Um, I think that's a really important thing with vertical aerospace. We've been very deliberate in uh, our hiring strategy. So we've hired, well, as I say, it started with um, someone from Manor Racing sitting down and, and sketching things up. So we actually hire, uh, we acquired a cons consultancy, an F1 consultancy, headed up by Mike Gascoigne, who's a, a bit of a legend when it comes to Formula One. Look him up. He's a really interesting chap. And we've, within the main company as well, we've also hired people from Jaguar Land Rover, from myself, from Dyson. But we've also hired people from Rolls-Royce, Airbus, and bring that real melting pot, that mixing of ideas, that healthy tension to challenge how we do things and start moving things, moving the industry on. Is it technology that's led to it or is it regula regulation? Because as far as I'm aware, vertical aerospace have been one of the innovators or one of the first people to be talking to the UK CAA and working alongside them, which yep. is one of your unique advantages. And the answer um, as well. So I was actually over in Cologne <laughs> the the day after SC VTOL was released, Special Conditions VTOL is part of the, the regulatory frame, framework or the proposed regulatory frame, framework to certify these vehicles. We already have things called um, CS25 for large aircraft, CS23 for the Cessnas and the CS20, 
27 for helicopters. So those are so existing, and yeah. this new framework needs to be created. And the reason why that we were over there, literally the day after they released it, was because we took the helicopter regulations, the fixed wing regulations, and molded those together. We did our homework, and then we went over to IASA to compare notes and our, our homework. Yeah, we've been there since the beginning, working with the regulators on what does that set So the regulators have created like. a whole new framework. Yes. Yeah. It's not... It's not blank sheet. There's lots of great stuff that leads to the safety that we enjoy in regular in um, aerospace today that they've drawn upon to then create this set of regulations. The second thing in my mind of the why now is the the battery technology and how that's continued to improve. Do you think even five years ago you'd be able to build an aircraft that you can build now without the battery technology improving how it has done? Probably not. I actually only learned this when I joined Vertical Aerospace. There's, there's two different types of cells. I'm putting chemistry to one side, you've got power cells and energy cells. So one is about how much energy can I store? And the other one is about how much power can I deliver? And most cells sit in one camp or the other. So they don't hold very much energy, but they can deliver a hell of a lot of current all in one go. And then the other ones can only give you a small amount of current can hold lots of energy and for us we actually need something right in the middle because it's very energy intensive to effectively shout at gravity in order to leave the ground so those cells have only just started coming into the market and are starting to progress and and evolve as time goes on do i think the real success of these aircraft are going to be on batteries probably not i think the first aircraft that we see in service and actually the launch of these will be on batteries and then I think we'll see a trend towards hybridization um, as batteries. The trend isn't it isn't doubling every year. Moore's law just isn't there as we see it with with current battery technology developments. So we're going to need that. If we look at the roadmap from now to having the first flights and having people being able to sit on your aircraft, what does that look like? I know you've said that you'll be flying by 2024. Yes. Um, so- a really interesting thing that we learned when we took Seraf to Canary Wharf. So we we rocked up, just plumped the aircraft in the middle of the Canary Seraf Wharf. Seraf was the second one you built. Yes, yeah. It, it was really interesting to engage the public and, and hear some of the things that were coming back, the common themes. And the first one being, wow, that's cool. <laughs> just seeing it in the flesh is is pretty awesome sight. So I'm hoping we can start doing that again soon. So some of the things that came back is, oh, is it just a toy for rich people? We've touched on that uh, earlier. But the other one being, oh, it's far future. It's it's sci-fi, it's it's 10 years out. But I can see that within five years, we'll have commercial services available. Just take Volocopter, for example. It was only last week, I think, that they started advertising the first tickets. You can buy the first tickets today to go on their aircraft. So It's not going to be for a couple of years' time. Yeah. Yeah, so they're in the, the multi-rotor space. So is there as electric as well? Yes, fully electric. Yeah. So I, for this industry, it's going to be less than five years before we actually see paying customers on these, which is really exciting because... Yeah. So what yeah. needs to happen to make that a reality then, apart from you building quicker? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just build it, right? So we've got some regulatory challenges. As I said, there's, there's a lot of new technology that goes into these things. And I think the, the regulators need to get their heads around 
a lot of the technology. So gas turbines, for example, yes, there's only one moving component, but they're fabulously complex. But they're seen now as old technology that's been proven. We now need to go through that journey with the individual technology areas of our aircraft. So yes, yeah, there's that bit to work on, but not just the certifying that it's safe, which is what we have the regulatory bodies for, and they do a fantastic job um, of that. There's also, how do we use it? How are we going to get concepts of operation that actually start turning people a profit? What are those routes? Then working with those cities to then start saying, getting all the regulations in place, all the infrastructure in place. So it's a really big system of systems problem, actually. Yeah. And that's where things like... Because it's egg there of if you get it approved, but you don't have any customers for it, then it's no use anyway. Yeah. So you need to drive the customers, but the customers then will be like, can you fly this thing? And it's not approved yet. And so I know that your approach is slightly different as you just propose to build them and then sell them to end users. I'd say the... Given we're talking about products that don't exist for a market that doesn't exist... <laughs> we'd be remiss not to keep our options open. So yeah. I, I think the primary use case is to sell to operators, but we're certainly not ruling things out at this stage. It'd be interesting because if, if you're a helicopter pilot now and you're looking at it and be like, oh, wow, I could train up on one of those and fly that and that would just be a change in job and just be more busy. Yeah, so we've we've actually built our pilot and loop simulator that's up and running. We've got our test pilots actually in that at the moment running through refining our control. Who, who are your test pilots? How does that work? How do you become a test pilot for <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm in terms of contracts and things about whether I'm allowed to advertise who is on the yeah, who's our test fine. pilots, but I can give you a quote that one of them oh it just it really did tickle me. We said, oh dear, this is what it is, this is what we're thinking about doing. And his response was sounds dangerous. I'm in. <laughs> So for me, I think that sets the, the mentality of what it is to be a test pilot. So these are the guys right at the top of the game who've, who've just flown everything, exceptional pilot skill. But their job is actually to pretend to be an average pilot. So with a test pilot, you know, this is all experimental aircraft. They've not been signed off. They've not gone through all the testing regime by definition. So things can go wrong. And we need people with an exceptional skill to understand how things can go wrong, what to do when, and, and all of that as we go through that journey. But their job is actually to then rank it and, and give us feedback to say, no, this is too difficult to use or there's too much workload or, or whatever to try and make these aircraft as simple as possible to use. And that's just in a simulator, is it? Yes. So all the so I talked about that analysis team earlier, right, that's going into our, how we design our concepts. So as our models get more and more what's called fidelity, closest which is a measure of closeness to reality. That physics has gone into our pilot in the loop, and also our control law design, the actual software, has gone into that as well. So we, it is it is being as representative as possible, and it will evolve as we go through. We've actually got the same controls as well that we'd use on the aircraft in there. That's all integrated. It's, it's a real fabulous talking piece for when VIPs come through, like the founder or, or whatever. But actually, the, the really encouraging thing for me, because... Take a, a helicopter, for example. All the controls are all very much, the fixed wing term is stick to surface. You pull a thing and it moves a thing. It's, it's a one-to-one, -one, it's a direct relationship. And 
helicopters are notoriously difficult to fly because of the cross-coupling between these controls. Whereas with our aircraft, you can't have eight arms <laughs> to control eight levers to control eight. So we have to put control loops on there. We have to put software in between yourself and the aircraft. And in doing that, we can then we can then take jobs in inverted commas away from the pilot and make these things easier and easier to fly. So we've we have instances of people literally just jumping in the simulator, not even being told what the controls do, and they take off and fly and land and say, "Oh, that was really cool, wasn't it?" No piloting experience, no nothing. I think that's one of the real game changers with some of this technology because does that open you up to more vulnerabilities or reliance on software? Yes, yeah, of course. But that's the rules and regulations are, are in place and, and improving themselves to how we produce safety critical software. So we've partnered with um, Honeywell, who have been making flight control computers for years and years and just have a real heritage in that. So they know what it takes to make something that is safe and can be used every single day uh, without incident. I personally have, have tried to fly a helicopter simulator. I think I turned it upside down within about five seconds. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, yeah, even I have managed to, to fly this thing around. So with your new aircraft, then the, the VA-1X, you've released what it's going to look like. Yep. When is the production? When are, you, when are you able to build the first model of that? We're looking to fly. Um, so build and start flying next year. The first oh, wow. version of That's that. Quite a short period. Yep. Take a look at our history, if any company is going to do that. Yeah, then. that's true. And it's all building it's still site. pretty racy, right? <laughs> and it is every, all building done on site in your Bristol office. Yes, yeah. But then do you use existing technology or is there other stuff that you rely on or other companies that you rely on to produce your parts? Yeah, so we're, we're effectively integrators. Uh, we can't design and make every single component of the aircraft. So we choose a few key technologies that we keep in-house, but then we rely on a lot of other technologies rely on industry-leading partners who are you know, the best at what they do, take Honeywell, for example, and flight control computers. And similar people for the, the motors and inverters, that powertrain is really critical. Uh, it's one of the real enabling technologies within the aircraft. But yeah, trying to get all these companies to align and run at the pace that we do uh, is a challenge in its own right. Uh, to then get everything on site to then start building it up uh, and then go flying. Yeah, so it's a real interesting challenge, for sure. When we look at the VA-1X, what is the first version of that look like? In is it, It's flying five people 50 miles. What's the range and what? how, how does that look? Yeah, yeah so it's, it's capable of carrying five people and luggage, but that's one pilot, four passengers, and four passengers worth of luggage so the first, only only one pilot it only needs one yeah, pilot only one pilot yep and our overall goal right is to remove that pilot looking far into the future autonomy and that's part of the reason why we put this huge emphasis on trying to make it easy to fly so trying to de-skill the well de-burden the pilot put lesser training requirements on them so these things are cheaper to operate so in terms of performance we're talking about 100 miles um at 150 miles an hour so that's sort of capability. and that's actually that's quite interesting because when you talk about that mission of getting rid of the pilot that's where it becomes really important that you have the systems in place yes because 
when you don't have a pilot, it's completely reliant on the fact that you have perfect systems that we've never seen in aircraft before, but also the fact that it's constantly talking to people on the ground. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. It's going to be one hell of a challenge to remove the pilot. That's one of the reasons why I joined is for, for challenges of that scale and magnitude. So there's going to be lots of pieces that all play into that. Um, as I said, making it, if it's easy for a human to fly it, then it's easy for a computer to then fly it. And then we put, you know, the eyes and ears on that and then the decision-making capabilities, uh, the underlying redundancy that's in the aircraft and its fault tolerance and fault reaction as well. So that's part of the pilot's job is to, to react to changing conditions, be it I've had a, a component failure or whatever. For me, the, that whole space is, is a really interesting complement to the aircraft. Clearly, we've got to knuckle down as a company and make sure the aircraft works. But I think with these complementing bits of technology, this is where we're really going to see it push into sort of the next level of um, capability. And all of it comes down to how can we make it cheaper for people to use it more? Because everybody wins then. How can you make it cheaper for people to so more? The, the utilization rate is one of the big things that drives that. So um, thinking about passenger ingress and egress, how, how do people get in, in and out of these things if we can make that really quick and slick? So you'll see on our aircraft, there's a unique door arrangement to actually aid people getting in uh, a lot faster. So we've got two doors staggered one on each side, just to allow quicker entry and exit. The charging time is a really interesting one. Electric cars at the moment take quite a while to charge. So what can we do to help bring that time down so that we can turn around the aircraft a lot quicker and keep it in the air flying, effectively generating money a lot quicker? If we're doing, and a lot of these things are sort of snowball. So if we're doing that, then we've got more slots uh, which means that the ground rent charges and all of that then gets just uh, gets uh, spread out uber have done a really good thought piece and i'm sure you've read it on on the ev toll um and i would highly recommend if anyone's interested to definitely read that because yeah when you add it all up and it's exactly that thinking then you can see per the i think the way they looked at it is energy cost per mile and yeah you can see that it is physically possible to get the energy cost per mile the same, if not better than petrol cars or yeah. your, your current cars. And so it should be possible. Yeah. It's just a matter of time and getting through the, the barriers, which you've mentioned. Yeah, it's that economies of scale. Once you hit that sort of tipping point, it's that those technology challenges, those social challenges of trying to get everything to that tipping point. Yeah. How can people learn more about vertical aerospace? Our website, there's loads of great information on there. Our social media accounts, I think probably LinkedIn is probably one of our best if people want to go follow that. Uh, the guys are really good at putting up lots of lots of content there. So yeah, check that one out. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Vic. I've had a great time. No worries. Thank you, Nick, Thank for having me on. And I hope, you're, uh, hope your listeners enjoyed it. <laughs> it turns out only six out of 10 people get to the end of my podcast. Um, so if you're one of the six, then it's great to have you on board. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. If you're feeling extra generous this week, then please do share this episode with one of your friends. Anyway, until next week, goodbye.